May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. The book of Ezekiel has been quite stark and frank about the impending doom to be unleashed upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Indeed, not merely through the prophet Ezekiel, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Habakkuk, and others have all been unmistakably clear. The people of Israel, the Lord's chosen and covenant people, have broken their vows, they have broken faith, they have forsaken their God, their only place of hope, and have given their thoughts, their words, their deeds, indeed their very trust over to the idols of the nations around them. The figures and images used by Ezekiel to make clear to Israel her unfaithfulness are often grotesque, disturbing, brutal, and for some irredeemably problematic. Our text today from Ezekiel 18 doesn't contain any of those images, and while its words are more plain and transparent, the message that it brings to us is designed to do the same thing, to cut us deeply. Like a two-edged sword reaching into bone and marrow, its aim is to awaken from us, or awaken us from our slumber, to challenge our presumptions and reduce to nothing any pretense of fatalism that might lead to apathy. The text itself is situated within several prophetic messages in chapters 12 through 19, which are related to the destruction and captivity of the city of Jerusalem. Focusing in on popular proverbial statements within the people of Israel during these trying and desperate times. But make no mistake, this destruction is inevitable, and there is nothing that anyone can do about it. And here the book of Kings speaks plainly. After the scroll of the Torah is found during Josiah's reign, the king and his leaders read it and are quite disturbed by the punishments they find there. And they conclude, Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so they send for the prophet Huldah, in part, I think, to make sure that they're reading correctly, uh, have they got this right, uh, but also perhaps hoping that she might relate to them some words of hope but not today. Thus says the Lord, I will indeed bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have abandoned me and made offerings to other gods, so that they provoked me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. Yet holding out hope, even still, Josiah cleans house. He calls for the removal of idols from the high places throughout Judah and even Samaria. He restores the temple. He holds the feast of Passover for the entire nation. Everyone is involved. And perhaps even a shift of momentum was perceived on the ground. But Huldah's message was not veiled. And so we read in 2 Kings 23, Still the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, 
because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. So think of the despair at this message. What hope does the current generation have when they have already passed the point of no return? Why even try? Why not just be resigned to fate and do what we please? What difference does any of it, any of it make anyway? God is not just. So we get the proverb that became commonplace throughout Israel, the proverb which opens Ezekiel 18. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Or as the book of Lamentations puts it, our fathers have sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. For Ezekiel, this proverb speaks to the desperation and despair that he encountered from those he had already gone into exile with. In essence, they believed, as verse 19 says, that the son suffers for the iniquity of the father, and by implication that the ways of the Lord are unjust. Now, the people aren't concerned primarily with generational sin within one's own family. The Torah is quite clear that punishment only proceeds across generations of those who hate God. No, Ezekiel understands that their real problem, the root of the proverb, is that the people believe they are being punished corporately and generationally for the sins of their ancestors. We bear their iniquities. So why should their generation suffer for the unbelief in the sins of former generations? Is not God being unjust? But Ezekiel is having none of it. His counter-message is concise and cuts to the point. And we read this in verse 4. Know that all lives are mine. The life of the parent as well as the life of the child is mine. It is only the person who sins that shall die. And in case the message isn't clear enough, Ezekiel illustrates his point by walking through three generations of a family. You have the righteous father who does what is lawful and just, who follows the laws of the Lord, he shall surely live. But then you have his son, a violent murderer, who acts contrary to the laws of the Lord. He will surely die, despite his father being righteous. And finally, you have the grandson, who looks at the ways of his father and considers them, and chooses not to follow in his footsteps. Despite his father's sins, the grandson will live, while the father will die. And so the point is plain and simple, and we read it in verse 20. The person who sins shall die. A child shall not suffer for the iniquity of a parent, nor a parent suffer for the iniquity of a child. The righteousness of the righteous shall be his own, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be his own. And so the point Ezekiel is stressing is that because God is righteous, we are all judged individually on our own merits. And this in itself is just and right. But notice Ezekiel doesn't stop here. He takes things a step further and shows us that God is beyond just in his righteousness. He is a God who offers mercy and grace for those who deserve to die. And so we read in verses 21 
and 22. If the wicked turn away from all their sins that they have committed and keep all my statutes and do what is lawful and right, they shall surely live. They shall not die. None of the transgressions that they have committed shall be remembered against them. For the righteousness that they have done, they shall live. So indeed, the ways of the people are unjust. And I think that's part of the point. Our end is not determined by our past actions. Well, this means that the righteous cannot presume upon their previous good deeds as a surety for their life. It also means that the unrighteous have opportunity to repent, to turn from their sins towards God, towards righteousness. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, and not rather that they shall turn from their ways and live? We are not prisoners to our pasts, nor are we captive to the sins of others. Ezekiel is giving us a gloriously free and unqualified call to repentance and to a new beginning. The repeated implication at the heart of the chapter is that today, at this time, God has given us an opportunity to consider the sins of former generations, and even our own, and to personally consider the unrighteousness in our own lives, to consider them, to turn away from the wickedness we find and to not do likewise. So how might our hearts and our ways compare with the exilic people of Israel? Does God care about our stale, presumptuous traditions, our memorized statements of faith, our pleasant smiles and our friendly sayings of peace, our obligatory confessions of sin put on repeat without any real change? All of those things, like the people of Israel at the Lord's temple, are meaningless and pointless without trusting hearts which are turned towards God coming to fruition in righteous deeds. And so as Ezekiel encourages us, we can cast away from us all the transgressions that we have committed against the Lord, and we can get ourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Later in the book, he will put forward the Lord's vision of a new covenant which he is preparing for us, a covenant in which God himself will provide the new heart and the new spirit to live before him and before each other. And Ezekiel isn't alone in this eschatological vision. He joins Moses, Jeremiah, and Joel, as well as all the people of faith which we read about in the scriptures. They all longed for and hoped for our days when the veil of the Holy of Holies has been torn aside and where we can boldly approach the throne of the Lord and make our claim to the realities of the new covenant purchased by the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus Christ. So let us not be lethargic and apathetic, sulking in the doom of fatalistic thinking. Let us come to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us come to the throne of grace where he willingly and freely gives aid to those who would but ask for it. Let us be the people who heed Ezekiel's exhortation to us this morning to consider, to turn, and to live. Amen.